Welcome to the Fabrice Garrier Show, a podcast about the future, where I bring you unique and diverse guests as we explore together ideas that will help us understand how we can shape the next 20, 30 years of our lives. You know, I personally believe that humanity collectively doesn't know what what they're doing and how to address all these cosmic shifts that are happening and how our individual actions expresses themselves systemically and how do we create alignment with these bigger changes to collaboratively create a better future. And my guest today is Neil Okilai. He's an old friend, but he's also a renowned expert in environmental justice and climate change. He received his PhD in geography and, inter- and also his master's in international studies from the University of Connecticut. And we explore together climate change, this large looming like challenge that we faced. Is it too late? Neil is originally from St. Lucia and he's a fellow Caribbean. And this podcast is so interesting because when we first connected, we, I started talking about Syllable, um, which is the company that I run. It's a science fiction and fantasy production house where I bring in authors to create visionary world buildings, try to bring more underrepresented BIPOC writers to this stage to engage and design a fictional world that they can use to write their own short stories, but also go further together. Um, and Neil was so excited when I mentioned my work with Syllable and, and the, the idea of using our imagination to reimagine the world. And this is how the podcast starts. We started ideating on the actual fictional world. And we tried to look at what would it look like in 150 years in the planet. This is what the first 20 minutes of the podcast is. It's so fascinating. Um, this is also the longest podcast I've ever recorded. I think you'll find this conversation dynamic, super interesting, compelling, the philosophy, the policy, the exchange is just so powerful. Um, I appreciate you tuning in. And if you like what you heard, please, please leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, support me on Patreon, and share this with friends, family, and colleagues. Again, thank you for tuning in as we explore this big idea of climate change and as it relates to the future. And yeah, let's dive right in. Thank you. I mean, yeah, so so I'm really focused on on islands, right? I'm like, how do islands leverage their their power and they don't have much given this the way the global system works, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of we don't have resources, financial resources, we don't have land, we don't have natural res- a lot of natural resources. Mm. But if we are reimagine the world and we can go with whatever world that we're talking about. I I see a world where the whole idea of 
Caribbean unity, for example, is actually a real thing where mm. islands become part of this jigsaw puzzle, right? Mm -hmm. And then we have floating islands and we can just actually meet somewhere. So <laughs> somewhere in the sky, you have, you have St. Lucia and, and St. Vincent and Grenada and all of the islands just meeting together. And then we can, uh, it could be like maybe once a month when islands meet mm -hmm. and you have that technology, it could be a train system or whatever, where people just travel easily. That's one world. It could also be the other way around. Instead of meeting in the air, you mm -hmm. meet in the ocean, right? Mm -hmm. Where you have these super advanced transportations that allows people to navigate the ocean space, right? So you're focusing, so you're putting a lot of emphasis on transportation and connectivity and yeah. so making making physical bodies and in the interchange of people and within the caribbean nations more fluid and more connected exactly you feel exactly. that create more unity i don't know but in my experience the more we talk to each other the better we're able to understand each other we try the more we interact um, the more we interact and then we tried CARICOM, but CARICOM, and then we're talking about this imaginative world, right? We're not talking yes. about a world that is right now. Yes. And we're thinking within the space of, of the, of, oh, not reality as it is, right? Because some of these things are physically impossible. You yeah. cannot leave an island and make it connect or whatever. But <laughs> since, since we have DC and Marvel, we might as well have, and that is another way to deal with climate change, right? Because mm -hmm. if you won't prevent the storm from coming, you won't prevent the um, waves crashing in, but you can probably avoid them. But the other question is, what do you do with the strong winds that are up in the air? Right. Maybe there are maybe there are gigantic wind wind turbines that like that flow in and that they create electricity. Mm. Where it's like the jet streams in the sky and how it kind of flows into the car. Oh, or maybe when maybe during the hurricane season, we can live on top of um, the the atmosphere that where all the hurricanes come from. Um, what's the name? Yeah, but mm -hmm. so you go above the storm. Mm -hmm. We're floating islands above the storm. But of course, we need to have the technology to, to <laughs> prevent us from, it's going to be very cold out there. And then there's not going to be much air. So we need to figure out how to, to do all of that. But we can almost like ride the storm. Mm -hmm. But the other prop, the other, the, the, well, I guess the easier way to do that is we know three months during the year, that's the hurricane season. Everybody goes up, all the islands just float <laughs> above, and that's, where, and that's where we do all the interconnectedness during that three months. Mm, what if it's a festival? It could be a festival. I mean, it would be a festival if it's in the Caribbean. Yeah. I can imagine like you have all these people moving and back and forth. 
and and then we can attract a lot of people it's like the islands are floating and it's like i could see all the lights the purple green lights in the sky it's all <laughs> festival people are all dressed up glittery sort of like yeah. a leans and it's like there's exactly like a seven day of like of it will be our version of aurora borealis right <laughs> in the caribbean yeah. it's like if i need to go to the poles you could come to the caribbean and i would i would imagine the same thing happening in all the islands and all the places maybe all countries will try to avoid disasters like that in that world that we are creating because I would imagine the US wanting to do that. It's much easier for islands because they're smaller. They can just go up, but you cannot, Florida might want to go up to avoid it on North Carolina, but what happens to the rest of the US? Yeah. I think the world you're creating then is like, or is climactic challenges and the climactic troubles or are they more extreme? And I think that's, I feel like you're insinuating that a little bit, yeah. that the challenges are gonna be three or four more times scarier than what we have now. Yeah. So we have to sort of create these radical technologies to be yeah. lift entire islands. Exactly, so here's, here's the situation, maybe 150 years from now, we didn't do what we had to do to solve climate change in terms of living in harmony with the ecosystem as Earth is. And then we decided that we need a different, we need to live differently because the storms are coming so strong during, during the hurricane season. It almost guarantees that it's going to wipe out anything in its path. Mm in that world. So it, it, yeah, it doesn't have to be Earth, right? It's just this world that experiences extreme weather patterns that, that you cannot even imagine, mm. right? And this, this, I don't think they should be, they don't have to be humans thinking about it. And this very, very intelligent race, right? Mm -hmm migrated to, to that extreme earth, but they came with all this abundance and technology. Things that we see is impossible, but they knew how to do it because they traveled a very distant galaxy. We can name the galaxy, whatever we want, right? Mm -hmm. And then they came and then they realized that they have the technology to survive in this because they're so advanced. They harvest energy from, from the air easily. Mm. They harvest energy from water, things that we thought would be impossible, very difficult to do, but they're able to do it, right? And they can literally, they have the technology to uproot big chunks of the earth. Mm and keep it afloat for a long time. Wow, sort of like, sort of like an anti-gravity. An, an, an anti-gravity, exactly, exactly. Now don't tell me how they'll do it, but they know how to do it. So <laughs> yeah. we need to talk, we probably need to talk to some real physicists and some real to see how would that look like? But nevertheless, they can almost lift big part of the planet and then take it up there, bring it down.
So it's like you're living both on earth and above earth. Mm. Seasonally, right? And then you have the really hardcore dwellers who can actually live in the extreme. Mm. They're like doing research and they're like almost like junkies, but scientists, you know, they're like, so when the storm is coming, they need to go there and measure it and do all this stuff to know what's going to happen. So actually scientists, a lot of these nerdy scientists are actually revealed as the superhero in mm. that world versus the muscular bulky person. Mm. So this sort of scientific inquiry of the mind and yeah. trying to help humanity through, through thinking, through creativity, through knowledge. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So yeah, and then as we develop, as we develop the story, you develop, you could follow, you could follow the life of a few major characters, like a son of a revered scientist who works in these extremes with his with his kid or whatever, and um, maybe he has a personal story. Maybe something impacted him personally. <laughs> Exactly. Maybe his family lost everything from this these extreme climactic thing when it first started to happen, maybe 50 years before 150 years. Yeah. And then he's taking uh, yeah, yeah. upon himself to figure out like how the heck do we address this? Like yeah. why are people doing anything about this? Why am I and we can we can also give this person a backstory. Because these people are coming back, coming from worse conditions than what they find, because they think it is habitable. Mm. So we can also give a preload, you know, to that that solar system that whatever they came from. I think, yeah, that would be cool. But the whole idea is that we want a world that is so difficult; it wipe up humanity. Due to climate change. Yeah, I think human shouldn't be the thing. Humanity is gone as we know it. <laughs> because no one listened. I'm taking it extreme, but no one listened. No, I no one followed it. the science. And then we can have all this. So even like old tapes of Donald Trump, like fossil, you know, mm. and all of these things. It, it won't be Donald, but of all things like. So people start saving stuff. Some people were already living. And actually, we could have the minority population, which are earthlings who survive. Maybe we'll have a, a few of them. The original people, so people. to speak. But they're not, really, they're not really like us because they've lived over 100 years. In, and they are trying to use the technology with these new people and then there's, and there's still all of the human emotions of greed and hatred and the order because this other species of, of beings mm -hmm. are migrants to the planet. So we still bring some of the common theme of racism and immigration, but in a whole crazy concept. I mean, I'm just thinking out of my head. But yeah, I'm yeah, just yeah. Like, I'm like I haven't I haven't thought about this before we <laughs> <stop>. <laughs> but yeah 
but I can I, I can see it like crystal clear in that world, that universal extreme where we are being taught by a, a foreign species mm. how to adapt, how to how to survive the last few hundred thousand of what you would determine as earthlings that are remain wow. on Earth. Islands are no longer habitable. That's why we have to float it and bring people back in them. And that's like a whole new, oh yeah, I can see. New society. It's like new values. Yeah. New but values, new society. My question is like, I guess, what would be the temperament of people, I guess? Because it's like, if people, if, if okay, so if, if it went to the extremes that you're sort of painting right now, and like majority of humanity has been eradicated because people, their behaviors didn't change. They still think, put things yeah. in the trash. They didn't implement white policies. They pulled out of the Paris Agreement. Like, it, yeah. like, like, what is the temperament of this sort of Caribbean? Those, the Caribbean nations are the final ones left. Um, and it's like, what is the temperament of those people? Like, are they more conscious? I you said you described mm-hmm. a group of the scientists for sure, but like, what I, I the, think... the festivals and what 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 is that? Is it yeah. are they like mer like wh- what is this other species as well? I like, think I actually think that the original Caribbean people are gone. Hmm. I mean, they were the first to leave. And the and the islands are reimagined. It's not how it's not what you see right now because they are almost they were that was almost like when Columbus came mm-hmm. or when the Caribs and Iraqs came, not Columbus, when the first set of people that we know lived in the in the Caribbean. Oh, it wow. was all forest and and virgin because people hadn't been living there for a while, right? So like the new world. Mm. Because the original guys are gone. We did leave like a lot of um, maybe um, archaeological remains and probably messages or whatever. <laughs> but the new, the new species of being figured that these islands are the perfect ecosystem to survive the extremes because you can easily remove them mm. and bring them up there. It's harder to do. It takes a whole Asia, uh, Africa. They could only do it with a specific spot because they only had that limited amount. And in, in the island, yeah. it became the best spot to do this. Yep. So we could either say it's because of the spot or because of the geographical size. And it's beautiful. So here, so here we are imagining that islands didn't survive climate change because they were so small, surrounded by ocean. And now, a thousand years or whatever years down the road, with this new species of bee, we're saying they have the technology to make islands the most, the most attractive place to live. Mm. Right? And then we're saying, those that survived are probably the few humans that we have left are those a few we have 
we have a few colonies in the US because they still have resources and they still either dig wells or whatever they did and they still did that. You have, so you have these major global empires still have a few, couple of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. There's still some in Russia, China, Europe has. So you have these very spotted colonies, but they're not globally connected because mm. they cannot because of extremes. So say one place is extremely dry and they live in a very dry ecosystem. Mm. So it could be that they were able to either build this, this greenhouse to help get rid of some of the sunlight and they live in that confined area. Wait, what are yeah, the extremes? One. What are the extremes? So the like, extremes are oh, uh, extremes. Ext like, what would be an extreme in Australia? What would be an extremes in exactly? Like, and I'm, I'm getting there. So you have an extreme dry place, right? Because that's one of the things that we'll get. We'll get extremes. You have an extreme wet place. You have a floating country or continent, whatever, because it's always flooding. <laughs> So a lot of the things that people actually live in on the ocean and you have extreme cold place. Mm. So all the weird extreme, the, the major weird extreme, that's what you have. And these are the, these are the, these are where humanity is in those extreme. Mm. And they've lived in those extremes so long that it's harder for them to adapt to another extreme. Mm. You get me? So the desert people, we can figure out how to call them the, the dry people. And we can decide which part of the world, once we look at the science or the literature, they'll live there and that's where they are. And, and their society has changed so much. They are foreign to someone who lives in an extreme cold region, right? Mm -hmm. And then this new race of people, this new race of beings arrive, right? And then they're trying to create relationships with each of the sets of countries. And some islands have been flooded, covered with water. You can't really find them, but these guys know how to take it up. Yeah, some of them are on water, some mountainous, some islands that are mountainous, you still have some landmass, but these guys are saying, well, we can get people to live on islands again. I was like, what? Like, yeah, we can just make this sort of thing. Is that, is that a bit too crazy? No, I think that's, that's very interesting. I, I, wonder, I wonder if there's, is, like, how would the oxygen level work if, like, if it goes too high in the sky? Like, would the people so, need to wear, like, a, a, a glass thing around their face? Or would would there need to be an entire glass tube around the eye, around the island that kind of floats and resonates this anti-gravity? Or is it like, or is it maybe the extreme climactic weathers have shifted the oxygen level to a, a higher level of the sphere, like the different sphere levels? Exactly, so we could say there's some genetic mut um, mutation, or we could even say some um, geoengineering where, the, some surgical technology where you can have 
a tube or something. These guys have all the technology. Mm -hmm. So you can have your little, maybe, maybe an oxygen thing, a patch, whatever, however you want to describe it, where you don't need a whole thing. You just need a, you just need some surgery from these, these very highly advanced beings because they've been living in that, in that kind of system or they have the technology to make it habitable. Mm. Right? I see what you mean, yeah. And then, so the other question is, how do we think about colonization in that, in that discussion, right? Are these people, are these beings coming to colonize or are they coming to, to are they just curious and explorers and, and stuff? So we can figure out, is there a fraction of, is there, is there a, a faction of them that are, more radical mm. and they see the the original earthlings in the different extremes as a lower species of people mm. or a potential partner i i do know like stephen hawking when he was alive he he had theorized that he sort of painted a very negative view of extraterrestrials of in the in the terms of like it would be the exact same thing as as the spanish lending in in latin america yeah um as like we would be the same sort of it would be the same interaction but there's been more, there's been other positive visions and views of like extraterrestrials i would hope that it would be a positive thing yeah, there I mean, species and they're maybe beyond this sort of humanity and or in our or absurdity to control and fragment yeah, yeah, yeah. things and like kind of satiate this endless search for control. exactly, exactly. We won't take total emotion out of them like Spock, but we will definitely say, while there is the majority for the most part. The goal is to find harmony and balance with nature, right? And maybe a small fraction might say harmony is by getting rid of the unwanted, useless, um, extreme earthlings. We'll call them extreme earthlings for now. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, a lot of them have seen this is an opportunity to radically change themselves and even those, those earthlings below. So I think that's how, and I guess that's the superhero idea of it because these big scientists are, or, 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 or these, these new beings are the ones that have that superhero personality. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, no, yeah, it does. It does make sense. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Yeah, uh, though I, I would love to, I would love to shift gears a little bit, Neil. Let's do that. <laughs> we went like because I feel like the 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 vision that you've painted, the world that you've sort of painted of 150 years or a thousand, and what we've decided is like there's only a little bit of humanity left because in your yeah. mind, you you believe that if we do not address the environmental, climactic, 
challenges that are or our current model in our system is 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 set up we're the future generations are going to face this and we are going to be obliterated exactly and then and i don't want to cut you short and then we can have a parallel universe where the opposite happened mm. <laughs> we actually solve all the major climate issues we lost a few things but a lot of stuff a lot of green energy, social capital, and all of these things. How do we get there? Like, what does that, like, what does that, what do people don't get around, around, like, around, like, environmental climate change and, and changing this system? Like, what is it, one of the biggest misunderstandings that you feel that people just don't get or, like, a, a mistake? Because I feel like we talk so much about climate change, but I feel like there's such a disconnect because people feel like it's just... You would think that's the issue that brings humanity together since Christ. Yeah, I mean, and then I asked my students the same questions, but I don't know if I have, I don't know if I have um, a perfect answer for you. But one of the things I think of a lot, and you heard about a lot, is a disconnect between policy and science. Because policy just the life of a policy, of a or politician, so to speak. Mm. It's it's within a short cycle, right? So you have every five years, you have a Westminster system, like maybe in the Caribbean every five years, a change of government or potential change of government in the US every four years. And in between you you have even Every two years, there's a midterm election in the US, for example. So people are actively pursuing political office and, and by extension power, right? Mm. And these are the decision makers, right? They determine the issue at hand. We, now, believe, we believe those are the decision maker. Because I like uh, what you're doing now because we're sort of like, we're sort of bridging the gap between this future world and then how it got to that place. Because exactly, people, exactly. people have power in a way. Exactly. People have agency too, right? Exactly. And I'll get to that. And I will get to that. And that's <laughs> part of the complexity. So we have, let's say we have that part of it, which is the political processes and the way that power is disseminated and decisions are made and resources are allocated and all the things that come with it and the complexity and the, and the craziness that comes with it, right? So you have that happening. And then on the other side, you have the scientific research and finding, trying to find truth or to understand the constant um, um, probing and experiment and everything. And that's a very long process. I mean, it will take it took scientists a long time to just to just say that it is a fact that we believe that human beings have actually altered the environment, have physically altered the environment. Mm. Because once you see something in the scientific community, you need that level of 
rigorous and experimentation and study and all of these things to try to get to a conclusion. Now, I'm not saying that they are always right, but they always admit the yeah. shortcomings. And if someone proved the theory to be wrong, most likely they will try to re-examine, re-experiment, do it again. So that's a long-term process. Now you are talking about a situation where a politician needs to be reelected in its resources for re-election. And you have this guy who has a lot of money, doesn't care about the science because the science, because he can influence change by just making the politicians. Now I'm, I'm going very extreme. No, no, yeah, no. On, on, in, in my in my assessment, but that that relationship or that workspace, if you want to call it, between science and policy, sometimes they are on opposite poles, and and I think bridging that gap is something that's very important. Communicating the science to policymakers is very important. Policymakers understanding the science is also very, very important. Because at the end of the day, you see two sets of solutions to the same problem. And the question is, which one's the right one? Mm. What's better? I mean, a good example is what's happening with the Paris Agreement and the US take on it. So it's it's become very transactional for the current president, right? Yeah. Everything that the US does is very it's a very transactional. What can the US gain, gain from from it or even his administration or his people long to to his level? Instead of looking at the overall picture, if we continue down that road, Florida will be in trouble, New Orleans will be in trouble, and everywhere else. I mean, if other countries are in trouble, the US by extension is in trouble because of how connected we are. Absolutely. But that is not communicated or that is or that is not rationalized in a way that that um that makes sense to a lot of us who are seeing it more holistically. But I also feel that I also feel there's is such a thing as human agency and and sometimes and not to put it in a politician's put myself in a politician's shoes because I do feel there's other modes of of systems change yeah, yeah, yeah. Of outside of policy but I feel like a lot of the times when political leaders are going out to communicate with bodies of voters it's it's like you have to simplify. And you have to sort of look at what's trending and what's yeah, resonating yeah, yeah. with people and what are, what are the public opinion on certain things. And you got to be very careful. Exactly, exactly. Over complexify certain things. You sort of have to dumb it down. So yeah. I, I feel like my tension with this division between policy and science is, is I, oh, I absolutely agree. I think policy is critical. And there needs to be a gap between sciences and policy. But is there a third way? Is there a fourth way? Is there a way where human behaviors, let's say 4 billion humans overnight, 
are changing their behaviors and they realize that their entire world that they they thought was uh, that's, completely that is, disappears. That is, that is definitely, that is definitely, you know, I would say, you know, other world. <laughs> because, because that could be another story. <laughs> Overnight, everyone just changed their behavior. That because we... We, that would be the one where where we do change the different path, where we don't go to the extreme. Things happen incrementally at a very slow pace. Not for climate change. Well, that's that's the thing. We are at a point where we need radical shift in behavior and approaches. But we are faced with a reality that we don't, we cannot... It's it's almost like we're built in a way that we don't we we cannot make these radical changes. Mm. I mean, even the policy that I'm talking about. I mean, we've been talking about solving climate change in the '90s, right? Mm. I mean, I remember when I first went to climate the first climate change negotiation in. In Copenhagen, you can't believe it was 2009, wow. right? We were the youths. We were the ones telling world leaders, you need to change because we young people are carrying, will be carrying the, the blunt of the problem. Mm. But now I feel like there's already another generation of young people. I mean, come mm. on. Greta. Come on. Greta, my students, they are the youth now. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and, and ask yourself, and I'm asked ask myself, what has changed mm. since when I was arguing that we young people? So it happens incrementally, which is, which is. I think it's dangerous. Not to cut you off, I feel it's... Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm from an island. It is really dangerous. We are islanders. It is dangerous. It is is very sad. Policy in the political process, as innovative it is, as we see a lot of countries struggle with these human rights and political challenges, but I almost feel like the political process is so damn slow. Let me ask you a question then. After policies implemented right now in Congress don't want even affect my life. Let me ask you a question then. Should should we not include so many people in the decisions? Because part of the problem is getting to yes, getting consensus becomes much more difficult as you have more people, more players involved. I've half the decisions are made by, I think I had an interview with, actually it's the one before this episode, which I'm, I love the connectivity. And it was around, I brought two American farmers, small farmers from Virginia. And one of them had, they're, they're, it's farming in the last hundred years. They've seen it in their family. And one yeah. of the that they had made was like, most of the policies are defined, are determined by lobby lobbyists. Yeah. Like, majority of the policies that we see the government doesn't make policy lobbies lobbyists makes policies yeah i thought that had some sort of validity 
I don't know. I'm not trying to paint a very pessimistic view of it. I told yeah, but I get the point. But so how do we do that though? How do we? Because, and I, I'm going back to your overnight, <laughs> overnight reality that four million people just for million, had a change for in, billion, four billion people <laughs> had, had just this overwhelming desire to do things differently. Mm. I mean, that's as fiction as it gets, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's just, unless you have, I mean, you kind of have to give them something. There has to be something in the air so that everyone could just like, oh, tomorrow we are going to be democratic. We will participate. We will be more social in our approach with the environment, we will, climate change is real. And mm. we're going to do something about it. And we won't let the islands die. Mm. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I, wish that I, I wish that was the case. <laughs> it is very fiction. I, but why, I think it, it has happened a little bit with COVID. I think a lot of, there's been sort of a halt to the system where majority of humanity as sort of like, or in the sort of similar mind space in terms of like, yeah. or lives being halted. I've seen it, we've seen it happen, let's say with the Holocaust, like with but, horrible, but what, you know, global- But what wars. did it happen? Not, it had to be an extreme thing, right? Yeah. It had to be something, that's what I'm saying. So if, if people change their mind instantly overnight, Something between that eight hours of sleep <laughs> has to happen drastically. You see, this is something I don't advocate enough, and I probably need to be unapologetic about it. But I feel like storytelling, film, movies, I think those have so much power in our and in their ability to transmute like values and, and really allow people to reimagine something different, something positive. That's what, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Your stuff is as fiction as it gets, because maybe that's a very good story. Maybe we're looking for the perfect story, but this is it, where someone wakes up and then everyone. But what about diversity? Let what about me... diversity of thoughts? Mm. Diversity of being? Are we all robots in that scenario? <laughs> Matching to that same bit of solving climate change and everyone's in agreement. But we've seen those changes though, right? We Yeah, but have we, have we, we seen it happen? Like MLK dreamed that little black boys and little white girls, little black girls and little white, like white girls would sit together hand in hand and people enlisted in that dream. And it was an entire movement. I, I feel, I'm getting goosebumps. I feel like in this ever so globalized world, I think we, ha I'm telling you, we haven't seen the power of the internet, the power of this interconnectivity because I was shocked when I remember the Black Lives Matter movement was happening and literally 
it happened in like 300 something cities across the planet. Even okay. if it was like 10 people in like uh, in the Nordic countries, like it happened globally. I think there is something that is, there's a connectivity. The pulse okay. of humanity so, is, is being- so what, so what would be, I, I, I see what you did there. It's very good. <laughs> I see what you did there. What would be the thing that everyone wakes up to? And how, how, how did we get to that point? Because you mentioned a few things. You mentioned MLK, which is good. But that was, that took generation. And it's still happening. And it still goes in waves and back and forth. And there's still a lot of, um, what I would say, chokies, a lot of um, rejection to that whole thing because to, to go M MLK's path is to forego another path, right? Mm. People are still re resisting that. And that's why we have a lot of racialized, racist sentiments happening right now. Because a lot of, I would say a lot of closet racists mm. are emboldened right now, mm. right? Okay, so that's one. But the stuff about that interconnectedness that mass mobilization of people <laughs> through the power of the media or social media, the internet, that's a real thing, right? That is actually plausible that one thing starts somewhere and it creates a wildfire, mm. right? And people are just reacting to it, that emotional drive to it. So, Amy Cooper. The lady that was calling on the black guy was just wanted to watch bird watch. Exactly, exactly. So, so we've seen that. We've seen the Arab Spring. Mm. Um, just one country creating this mass movement. Social media, other countries are stepping in in the Arab world. We've seen stuff like that happening. So I'm not rejecting your idea completely. Um, um, I'm hopeful that we can have that change. Like I said, we are islanders. We'd hope people would just get with it. It's happening and it's real. Yeah. But, but there's also a strong rejection or strong um, strong well rejection to that idea that we all should live in that world of equality and fairness and forget about race and gender and all of these other things and see each other as just human beings because some people are benefiting quite a bit from the current status quo. I mean, I was just listening to, to Morning Joe <laughs> this, this afternoon. I was listening to, an, to a segment in Morning Joe. And in the COVID era, uh, I don't have the exact figure, but the richest people in the world are making so much money. Mm. And there has been more 
I think inequality and poverty from the last 20 years. And then only a fraction of these rich people are contributing back to society. Mm. And if they did, if these billionaires were given, and I think one of the guys who were talking, was talking about it says, if everyone gave um, at the level of Warren Buffett back to society, we would have solved um, extreme poverty three times over. Crazy. So, so here's the scenario we are. We are in a global pandemic, a very racialized pandemic, a very disproportionate pandemic. Mm -hmm. The richest people are making a lot of money. Mm -hmm. The poorest people are dying and then they are getting poorer, mm -hmm. right? And, and to tell these guys, hey, let's wake up tomorrow and solve all these problems or think of it differently would require to tell them to give away a lot of that wealth that they have. But a lot of people disagree with the idea that millionaires and the wealth that they've created themselves should be this wealth tax, I can think of a top, I can, I'm just like, I, I hear some friends in my mind that are saying like, you shouldn't have a wealth tax, like money shouldn't be, but I, I'm in agreement with you. I really do believe that that's unfair where you like have millionaires and billionaires that are becoming richer because- I'm not saying, I'm not saying it's unfair or fair. I'm saying that, how do you have that conversation? Mm. Because I've, I, I do have friends and we share some similar friends who say, yeah, people should have a few million maybe. And then after that, they should put it in the pot. I, I don't know how to have that conversation. I, I, do, I do wonder, and this is sort of tying back a little bit of thread from earlier, is that like, how do we, okay, so that's a beautiful process you sort of place in the equation that like the top 3%. The people that hold the capital that could snap a finger and make a lot of things happen. We need them. We need them to. That's the one we probably need overnight. Mm. Those mm. are the people that need to wake up. Over. I love <laughs> that. Mm. I'm putting mm. the burden too much on the. You see, this is interesting because I remember I was, I was reading an article around like how people in the environmental movement shame people because they're like, let's say eating meat and they're doing all this, but it's like the majority of the disaster is because of these oil companies. Like we should do more divesting and more campaigning against, not shame people for eating meat and, and like destroying the capacity for us to kind of connect with each other. I, my, my question, I have a question, Neil, sorry to- Go ahead, go ahead. Let me write, let me write this out, go ahead. Because it's like, you bring up such compelling points. So, in my mind right now, I'm looking at three different avenues of, of change. First is bridging the gap between science and policy. Yeah. Having policymakers that are more in tune with the scientific process so they can implement factual things based on data. And I, and I totally agree. And I've, told, I've kind of pushed back a little bit because I told you like policy is really slow. 
And that's why I brought up mobilization, mass mobilization, social media, technology, getting people connected across cultures to move towards action. And then you have the, the top two, 3% of society. I feel those are three potential ways that could address like climate yeah. change on a very radical systemic level. Yep. But how do we wrestle with these extremes and with yep, these fictions yep. that we've sort of narrated? Do is the top two person gonna gonna wake up and say like, oh shit, I got my investment in all these oil companies? Yeah. And so all my buddies are in these things like the old 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 boys club, like exactly. the old boys club that is sort of structured in a narrative that has been there for the last 600 years is that gonna change their ways because i don't even know the 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 mindset of that the top one person i can't claim to know but it's like what how do we how do we wrestle with these these three modalities of change the policy yeah, yeah. science gap the mass mobilization and engaging the people that have the capital because oftentimes the poor people are the ones that gets that gets the brunt. Oftentimes, all the time. <laughs> yeah, and then so I'm going back. So let's see. So we've talked about having policymakers more in tune with scientists and scientists more in tune with policymakers. That's a more practical thing, right? We could have, and I think I would say we tr we are trying to do that in academia. We're not the best at it right now, but you have a lot of programs where students are taking environmental studies degrees or environmental science, environmental science and policy degrees, where you train young people with scientific um, tools to understand policy and to implement policy. And hopefully they can bridge this space better in the future as they become either scientists and policymakers, right? So at least as an academic, that's one way I see we're doing that. Um, there's also, so in essence, we are building future politicians that are scientific in their approach and understand the science, right? Mm -hmm. Or we build or, or we are, um, get a future scientist that understands the importance of policy and how policy is made, the policy, the nature of a policy, right? The cycles that um, that a policy go through, right? Mm -hmm. So let's see, we kind of, that one, I think it's good. I like the mass mobilization of people <laughs> through education, mobilizing, creativity, intellectual, um, technological, ways of doing that. We have a long history of doing that, mobilizing people and getting them to, to get passionate about a, an issue, right? Um, educating them and touching their core, right? The, the emotional, getting them emotionally attached to an issue that they can enact change in the future. Mm. Hmm. Now, the third leg of the problem is how do we get the Forbes 400 richest people in the world to say, hey, let's invest the capital to do the other two things that we talked about. 
Mm. All right? Because if you're going to have more scientists or young people that are scientists, but also policy, you need to have better robust education. So it's a lot of investment, not only in technology, but a lot of investment in, so in and resources, in education, in understanding, in inquiry, right? Value in education. Put in the necessary resources to do that kind of um, intellectual change that we need, right? Mm. Uh, also, put in resources in the places that are needed right now, like the poor that you talk about, the marginalized, the more vulnerable, the, the communities that have been historically uh, disfranchised, right? Because of um, either the color of the skin or because of the systems that are in place that are racialized in its approach and its nature because of the historical legacy that certain people got a fair share as compared to other people. So making that change and that is inherently a big economical change. Absolutely. Right? To solve a lot of the social ills. I mean, hence what that's why we are seeing what's happening in the US, right? Mm. People feel that like they are not as American as someone else, as a neighbor. Mm. And, and, and investing in, in the resources to get people to that same platform. So how do we do that? I wish we had your snap of the finger. Everyone goes, this, this, 400, this 400 richest people on Forbes list went to bed and wake up and decided, I just need a few million. I need to, mm. I need to reinvest in people. And I don't see it as a way of only accumulating wealth, right? I need to reinvest in people, and that is what, and that is what I will enact some of these changes. But I, I almost feel like going to the psyche. It's like I, there's been research done. It's like the more resources that you get, that changes your psychology, that changes yep. your worldview, and it's like I'm afraid. Like as I sort of like accumulate resources yeah, resources and or climb you work hard it's like part encoded in my prototype as an immigrant it's like i have to sort of yeah. reach this level so i can pour into the communities that i care about but exactly I, exactly but i think that becomes the same problem of this sort of machine where there's it's almost a, where we've reached a point of no return i'm skeptical of policy and the science gap because it's like i'm not willing to wait a hundred years for like this this policy change to undo these the the, the way the system's been like the industrial yeah. system how it's evolved like I don't know I think we do need to think of these radical moonshot ideas and and I and I think that institutions and systems tend to have a life of their own. Once it's institutionalized, once a system is in place, there are a lot of ways that it's tried to maintain its importance. And that could be 
the people who are employed by the system don't want to lose their job. So if there's this institution or a, a capitalist society, the people that benefit from it find ways to hold it together. And you can you can think of institutions and think of it even as a as a political um, process, a capitalist society, a socialist society, a dictatorship, whatever the process is, people tend to those who are benefiting, be it a few or a lot, will try to keep it together, right? Yeah. And 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 I guess that's when our mobilization really needs to kick in, right? For change, to disrupt that system, to to create um, these this um, fracture, as you call it. That, it, that eventually becomes an entry point for change. I do feel like we are overdue for an American Renaissance where- oh, What would that look like? I'm curious. I think it would be, I don't know. I, I do feel it's coming because I do, I'm, I am, and because I feel like as millennials, because millennials have different values than yeah. previous generations and as, and I hate to say this, as the old guard dies away, <laughs> I feel like, and as millennials climb more into sort of the, the systems of power, power. Mm-hmm. I feel like the values will inject themselves. Like millennials, we care more about the environment. We care more about traveling. We care more about meaning. We care more about brands that have authentic things. So I feel like this renaissance, for me, I always say like, you can't have a revolution without a renaissance because yeah. revolution is inherently destructive and it, it leaves a lot of a trauma. And violent. And violent. Destructive yes. and violent, yeah. I think the revolution allows us, no, the renaissance allows us to envisions of what we, what our role can be and redefine that future. That's it's, revolution. I think... I think creativity has a lot to play with it. That sort of generative internal sense of like, I'm a creator and I can co-create this world. I think it's tied to human agency. I think whether you look at intellectuals, artists, uh, people, I think a, a, a global conversation around what we are and where we're headed, I think it will be facilitated by technology will be facilitated by this change of values. So I'm an optimist at the core. Wait, wait, what about accessibility though? I think that's, I think that is a, that is a a paradigm that has been discussed for so long with like, with web, W.B. Du Bois talks about the talented 10th or Plato talks about the philosopher king. Yeah. where, Where they've made claim that only a single few of people will be able to guide the majority because they're not fit in terms. So I, I would challenge that as well. I think that is in, in this sort of hero's journey, the lone genius, the people that is this sort of like charismatic leader individually, which it is building or core, I would say is outdated because it yeah. doesn't leave room for people to actually feel like they have ownership and process of creating their own future. So yeah. 
So I, I totally agree with what you're, the tensions that you're bringing, for sure. Yeah. I see so accessibility, right? Um, let's, uh, we're assuming that a lot of people have access to that, let's see, that medium of communication. That they, let's see, let's see, cell phone, mm-hmm. for argument's sake. So everyone has a cell phone. Everyone has um, a pretty good cell phone with a decent internet, because that's how you're going to have access to our four billion, right? Yeah. Our four billion people. <laughs> so the question is: so who is the messenger, mm. and who's providing the message, mm. and and that message to so the, so I guess what I'm trying to get at is who's playing God in that scenario? Who's, who's playing playing God in that scenario? Mm. Who's who's playing the Messiah? Right? Because at the end of the day, if we're saying that we need to reach everyone, mass mobilization, which I totally agree. I mean, when it comes to climate change and stuff of social inequalities and justice and fairness, we all need to have agency in creating that change, right? We all need to have the mode to do it, the power to do it, the belief to do it, mm. the energy to do it. Mm. All right? Yes, yes. So that 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 I agree on. But a lot of times we've been shepherded in the direction and miserably failed by people. We give the power to leaders. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's like so, we're looking for a savior every four years to give us a better life. And they tell us the same thing. They tell us exactly. change possible. They tell us that go out and vote. They tell us exactly. that they evoke these historical traumas to sort of incite exactly. role. Exactly. It's like we're in a exactly. I love exactly. It's like exactly. I'm refer I'm I love the book cast by Isabel Wilkerson. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I have not the chance. I have not had the chance to read it yet, but I look into it. Just came out with it, and I've seen a bunch of interview on YouTube. Um, I feel I process information that way. But she sort of described in her book cast, literally just the word casting, how we're sort of cast into these, these social hierarchies, these social roles. Exactly. And I that plays this. That's I feel that's how the sort of system is set up. It's all about meaning, and I think our identity as people or self-worth as people, or interaction with political structures, we're casted into these roles. And I think I mean, the way it's designed is, is just messed up. <laughs> I mean, I mean, a common thing you hear a lot, well, at least I heard a lot growing up, is that we are social beings. We are inherently casted in different Paces and structures and hierarchies and positions and different things. Mm. I mean, society, just the word society itself means it's its true meaning. It's like that casting, right? That you're talking about. 
So that's something we need to figure out, right? Who's delivering the message? And, the, yeah. And and who, who are the shepherds and who are the sheep? Can can that message be? Because if I'm looking across history, unfortunately, that message, unfortunately, that message or whoever hijacked before the message is hijacked by a human being, it has always been a horrible crisis. You look at the Arab Spring, this 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 merchant literally burns himself in front of a government building because his license and food cart was taken. He burned himself alive. And this just like exploded the hearts and minds and people into sort of into action. You look at George Floyd, eight minutes, his neck being squeezed, thrusted people. You look at the civil rights movement, the media and the water being poured into people like the, the like the, the holes of waters or the, the black bodies being harassed by white people in, 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 in segregated spaces. Or you look at like things in the war in Vietnam, like the horrible bombings of cities. Like, unfortunately, I think the messenger is gonna be a, a horrible crisis. And I do not wish that upon humanity, but when it's coming, it's gonna be bad. Because um, there's a lot of pain to reconcile with. There's a lot of pain and anger and bitterness and, 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 and disappointment to reconcile with. So how do, we haven't even talked about reconciliation, right? How do you reconcile with some of the, the trauma? Things? Yeah, distrust. I mean, we haven't even talked about the gender gap mm. and the nuances that comes with it. And some of it that we as male won't be able to understand. Absolutely. But it's so real. And 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 what about all the other changes out there, all the minorities mm. in physiology and thoughts and and, pers and personality? Wow. We are inherently 8.7 different beings. Mm. Even if we even if we were twin in the same womb. Mm. So 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 the overnight, I think we should work on the 400 <laughs> Forbes <laughs> rich billionaires. Forbes, no, okay, 400 I, billionaires. I do not want to harp on horribly on the 400 richest. I, I feel some of the 400 richest people are some of the people that have donated the most to philanthropic causes as well as- I agree. I have nothing. I have nothing. Bill Gates has single-handedly eradicated polio in like multiple countries across the planet. Don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, Warren Buffett is one of my heroes. I, I, I love the person he is and what he stands for. Yeah. And, and I have no qualms with any person who acquires wealth or anything like that. No, I, I, so what I'm saying is that if we are reimagining a future, especially given the current crisis we are 
we need resources to turn that imagination mm. into reality. And that's mm. just a fact. No matter what the future is, I mean, God forbid it's a bad thing, but whatever we want to do tomorrow, because that is how we have healed society, right? I mean, we have a system in which power, a lot of power is tied to capital wealth. Mm. I mean, this is the American dream. <laughs> this is mm. this is your this is your white fence and well trimmed lawn and your dog. Mm. I mean this is that accumulation of that perfect house mm. on the corner, right? It's the, that, the imagination. Exactly. So, so if we are reimagining a situation where we are going to solve climate change, for example, it needs a lot of resources. And governments do not have all of these resources. And I have to address this because I think you bring up such a powerful point. I think that struck me so much. The idea of looking at my own masculinity looking at other genders and other lived experiences outside of us. It's like, if we are to reimagine a future where we have to come together to address these cosmic climactic challenges and the resources and the political will, the cultural will and the individual will that's necessary. It's almost as if it's like, we have to address the trauma that separates us from that others us like yeah exactly all how do we like create intersectional like alignment between all of these these like this system like it's almost it's like the prototype has been the wasp like the white anglo saxon prototype that's kind of yeah. the, the model but it's like now people are seeing like this model has sort of suffocated a lot of other people with other lived experience black female uh, LGBT, um, diversity from different cultures and religious beliefs. But it's like, how do we even, I almost feel like we have to address those underlying trauma, this, this pain of separation that the, 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 this model, this dream has sort of caused us in order to really go beyond this mountain and create this sort of beloved community. Because I feel like we, we, I'm, I, my optimism starts to erode when I, you're making me realize this. It's like, yeah, we, we have to address these things. And how do we tie that within this sort of, this bigger challenge that we're facing? Because there's a lot of issues. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we need to add another pillar to our free legged. Now with, triangle now we have a now it's a different we probably have like a, <laughs> it's a, where, well, i think see, we complexify the mobilization part because people won't be able to mobilize if we're divided yeah and i mean and and that's one of the things i i put hia humanity in action mm. tried to do and does 
pretty decent job at is the celebration of diversity. I always, and I always tell my students, diversity, you should always celebrate it. Not only diversity in being, diversity in physiology, diversity in force. We can celebrate it even if your worldview might be different from that. Because in its core, it's what creates a global community. It's that diversity. I'm not saying that you have to agree with some of it. You actually, you actually should definitely work really hard to, to get rid of some of it because some stuff doesn't celebrate diversity. I mean, some political views or even views on, on gender and views of, uh, on race. They don't celebrate diversity. So it's okay to say, I reject that claim because that claim to me doesn't celebrate diversity. And yeah, and I think at the core of it, having that, that idea or that ethos of celebrating diversity, even when it's a reckoning of your own worldview or understanding or paying attention to it at its core can get us to a closer place of mass mobilization, right? Not, yeah, a little bit closer to each other. I think yeah. so. Yeah. I think so too. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So, so we should have celebrating diversity as our other leg of that. Yeah, because I mean, if you're going to serve climate change or any global pandemic or whatever, you need to understand how diverse the situation is, the problem is, the solutions are, mm. and, and the vulnerabilities are. I totally agree. I feel yeah. like we don't, we don't leverage a lot the flavors of the worldview or the collaborative power of other yeah. people's approaches. We're like, it's my view and it's the highway. I studied this thing and it's the, it's the way it's supposed to be. This is what it's the Messiah mentality. I'm telling you, mm. and that's and that's yeah. So how do you reckon with this? How do you deal with it? I sure hope my students have some answers. <laughs> you have to let me know, man, because yeah, this has been such a great conversation. I feel like I feel like the imagining in the beginning is. It's very real. It's like, I feel climate change, for me, climate change is like, it's almost a no brainer. It's like, it's too late. I almost, I don't want to go through the, it's like the metaphor where they tell like black people, there's a criticism of voting where people say, okay, you're telling black people to vote and go to the proper like channels when their entire house and community is burning. Exactly. Nobody exactly. for that. It's like, how do exactly. we- a level, how do we operationalize this urgency in a way that is not traditionally done? And, and people have been hurt. I mean, how many times how many times can one go to the polling station and vote and come back home 
the following day when their vote didn't matter. Mm. In a sense that, in a sense that nothing changed, in a sense that, like you said, the lobbyists are behind the scenes, putting the strains, having politicians on, on like like puppets, in a sense that what was promised was not delivered. And, and that reminds me of a conversation I had with someone very recently here in St. Lucia. And um, one of the things we were talking about, and I told him, we are too small of a country to be so polarized in our politics. Mm. I mean, we know what polarization leads to. Mm. And there is no law that says that if you voted for a particular person, that your whole life have to be with that party. Citizens shouldn't align their whole being to a party. The party has to respond to the seasonary as opposed to you responding to the party. You could say this year, I voted for this candidate because he, he had a vision that aligned with mine or some of the things he was talking about made a lot of sense to me, or he's a better alternative than this other person. Mm. And then you vote for this person. And the following election, you can say, well, I voted for you for X, Y, Z. You didn't deliver on any of them. I'm giving someone else a chance. That is the nature of politics. And that is the nature of a, of a democracy is having that independence. Because you hear a lot, even in the US, like it's the independent vote you need mm. because Democrats will be Democrats, Republicans will be Republicans. And it's in Russia would say, Flabo will be Flabo, which is the United Workers Party, a torch, which is a Flabo. And Labour will be Labour, which is the Central Labour Party. Mm. Why? We are too small of a country to be so polarized <laughs> in these two fractions, these two factions of parties, these two political space. Maybe we should be in the middle and decide this year, I'm going to the right because that's what I think they would, that's what, that's the vision I have for the island. And then they didn't deliver the following cycle, I'm going to the left and move between the political space as you see fit. I'm not telling you what party to vote for, but I'm telling you, don't go into it. Mm. Have that vote you casted this, this year and in five years. Think of all that, thinking that you vote for that same person. Because what is, and the other thing I told, I told my friend we were having this conversation is that just like you see the news, it's also extremely polarized, right? So, and I'm guilty of that too. I mean, we tend to watch a certain news outlet reinforced what we already believed, not necessarily to be informed, mm. right? You feel good. Yeah, so you reinforce this. I knew it. I knew <laughs> it. This is exactly, 
is exactly what I was talking about. Something. You see, Mika is speaking the same language that I'm speaking on morning show. I knew it. Well, you guys, joke hits it right on the nail. I'm not going to listen to any of, of these guys at Fox because they don't know what they're talking about. So we listen to reinforce our worldview or our beans, whatever. It's the same thing we do with politics, right? We follow the, a party to reinforce what we, what we had already decided mm. five years out, right? It's like everything that party says makes sense and everything other party says doesn't make sense even if they say the same thing, right? It's just that it's the wrong people who say it. And we cannot afford to be like that. And that, that's just my, my take. We have to be independent as citizenry and decide to cast a ballot what we think is right and then change our mind. You see, and, I, I want to say something because I, I, I want to respond to what you said because it reminds me of what you said earlier. You're like these, the systems around us, the organizations, these things sort of take a life of their own. Yep. And for me, I personally believe that modern humanity or the, the modern human, our, our imagination has been colonized. Like our meaning structures and how we make sense of the world and our interaction with every aspect of our lives those systems, those sort of things that take a life of their own have greater control and sort of claiming dogmas and claiming things that we believe in terms of the definitions that we hold true to ourselves to be. So uh, I feel like this is sort of a perpetual journey to how do we decolonize our minds, our imagination, our thinking, to not only, to, like you said, education to bring more like critical thinking, to bring more into independent thinking, to bring more creativity, to bring more life, to bring more nuance to how we sort of engage ideas and things and systems. Because yeah, we are just a colonized imagined people. And that, that brings me to, to a song I play the first day of every class. Really? Redemption song by Bob Marley. Wow. I play that song to all my students because he talks about that colonization, right? Emancipate yourself from mental slavery. Mm -hmm. None but ourselves can free our mind. Right? Yeah. So that 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 reimagining how the world is, that emancipation, right? I once, I once told a friend of mine about that song. I said, that's not a song. That's like scripture. Mm. <laughs> because, because of this relevance, right? Mm. And that goes back to your point of art and, and music and theater and writing can help us with some of that reimagination. We can put it into words for music and song and poetry, mm. writing, right? I mean, I mean, that goes back to 
what you're trying to do with this reimagining of the universe, right? Of of this of that of that space, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I agree. I mean, a lot of a few a few um, worldviews have been dominating our space, our minds for a while. And a lot of the minority ones have been lost, or we don't have the space to reimagine mm. things differently. Yeah. You're in the survival mode. You can't do that. Yeah. And, and I mean, how do you tell someone who doesn't have health care, mm. who doesn't have basic needs? to sit and reimagine the world differently mm. when they cannot even survive in the one that they're living. Wow. How do you do that? And what right do you have to do that? Mm. Yeah. The, the 400 the Forbes list seems more <laughs> of a viable option, Neil. More and more. I think they can't collectively <laughs> their fingers. <laughs> Yeah, and and they can mm. they can sit in a crisis, a global health crisis, and still be making money. So they don't they can reimagine. They can sit and reimagine the world differently. Most of us cannot, right? Actually, I really need to talk. There we is really need to talk to the the four hundred richest people in the world. You see, this is an interesting quote by Bob Marley. He says, some people are so poor, all they have is money. <laughs> what? They're yeah. so poor. All they... <laughs> all they have is money. That brings such a radical, like, reinterpretation of what it means to be, sort of, quote, rich in terms yep, yep. Terms of self, in terms of connectedness so, with other people, in terms of diversity of thoughts, in terms of creativity, and in terms of, yeah, we definitely need to. We need to talk to these four hundred folks, people. <laughs> maybe they, maybe they could be in the story. Maybe, maybe these four hundred <laughs> people, if they're gonna be traveling to like North Af, uh, Antarctica, in like a cabin, survive these. <laughs> crazy climactic thing because they can afford it uh, maybe <laughs> yeah. that's where they maybe that's where the one of the scientists maybe they're the descendants of the scientists goes and like tries to stage an intervention with these 400 people the richest <laughs> before it goes to the extreme weather maybe there could be an intervention someone that goes and talks to them and tells you like hey something has to be done and you guys have the power yeah to do it you guys you guys can sit and reimagine i can i need to work mm. i need to feed my family mm. but yeah i mean i mean i think to the core what we're talking about is and people get really crazy when the word redistribution is put out there some people get really um antsy about it but there needs to be a way that resources are more 
distributed to lack um, lack of better word, but people have access to to basic infrastructure. I mean, to the pursuit of happiness, mm. right, life and liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It has been tied to 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 a capitalist society. Does that make any sense? I mean, I mean, I don't know if that makes because we we hear so much in the news. Like, I mean, it's it it gets to me a little bit when when you hear. The greatest economy on earth. We can't close the country because we need the economy to move, and that's the legitimate argument. But bodies have been have been valued, and you can't put a price tag on a body. Uh, at least that's how I think. On 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 a person. I mean, that person who we could have saved from COVID. That young person. That young scientist. That young doctor. You never know what contribution this person would have had to society. I mean, how do you value this? I mean, I, I was speaking to someone again today, and then she told me that, well, it's sad that, and she was referencing a country in the global south, right? A, a developing country. It's like, it's almost as if, Leaders have said, we have a big population. So what if a few million people don't make it? Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's not, that's not what the leaders are saying, but it's almost, you almost feel that's what's being done in terms of the policy. And it's, it's the same thing. I mean, you could say the same thing in the US. I mean, that herd, that herd immunity thing. I mean, it's like the same thing. But I, I feel I mean, like that is that not to devalue what you're saying, but I do feel like that's I think there's a term for this in philosophy. Or maybe I don't I don't know if it's utilitarianism. Or they always do this sort of like, would you save the the baby or would you save the doctor or like a bus of like children or a doctor that could cure cancer? Cancer, like, yeah. What what would you who would you save? This bus of babies that's about to go in a ravine or this drowning doctor you will only be able to save one i know i don't want to reduce things on this but i feel like because i i think and i have to and this is something i always realize especially working at the, in the government and sort of seeing behind the scenes i feel like statecraft like is a heck a hell of a difficult job i don't know why would anyone would want to do that yeah it is extremely difficult job like to be able to and like to be able to navigate these entrenched systems that are extremely outdated and and it's like i don't know i was thinking about it i was like actually one of the toughest job should be a job of a politician, a leader who, a leader who does a good, a fairly decent job, always has the hardest job. Mm. I mean, you can easily become a politician and say, 
and 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 say that same herd mentality thing that we we just talked about, right? Same. Mm-hmm. For the greater good, we're going to save X, Y, Z, and then we can add to the rest, make that decision. It's hard. That's a, that's a hard decision. But it's even harder when you're thinking of how to save everyone. Yeah. And you're constantly thinking about how to get, get to a bit of a closer union in governance and in, and in infrastructure and in mentality and in people. When you constantly think about all the other things, that's a very tough job. And, and it should be because you are inherently given the power and responsibility to make the decision. decisions for a lot of people. That's a lot. A lot of people. And, and you should constantly think about it. Yeah. And, I mean, and sometimes you have to make these tough decisions. And, and now almost and live with it. What'd you say? Making it, I mean, making it, it's hard. It's even harder living with it. And I, I feel like I, yeah, that's, that's very powerful because I almost feel like this is not me to harp on politicians and the political systems but i feel like the the traditional structures of power have radically changed over the last three or four decades it's like cities have more power than a lot of governments around the world companies have so yeah. more power philanthropic organization groups of people with, within a certain identity I, 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 or cultural creators or, or film, I, I feel like power itself and how it's leveraged and used. And I know it's economic and I know it's that drives so much change, but I feel like there's so much creativity that is not being used in terms of leveraging these. But what is, what, what is the power of the government that still remains constant? The legal use of force, right? Mm. They can still police you. Mm. They can still arrest you. And they can still take away your money. <laughs> for taxation, for levy, sanctions, whatever you want to call it. So, and, and that's probably a diff, another conversation completely that yeah. we should have about navigating the space of government on every other entities around it, and how should we reimagine that mm. that space? Because, like you say, it has changed. It ought to change because we are constantly evolving. I hope um, reimagining stuff. I hope becoming more tolerant. I hope and diverse. I hope. So having a stagnant govern, government is a bigger set of colonization than anything, right? Mm. That is why the citizenry needs to be vibrant and active and independent. Creative. Creative. And having that symbiotic relationship with 
government and structures as opposed to a parasitic relationship mm. in most cases. Mm. Right? Yeah. People don't know that we are the governments. It's like yeah. these social contracts is exist inside of us. Exactly. I mean get that. I mean, at least in a democratic structure or quasi-democracy, the idea that you give up power to the government with certain responsibility in return, right? You allow the government to police you, to tax you, to punish you, mm. to with, but with that, giving up the power, they have a responsibility to educate you, to protect you, to allow you to have a fair share of pursuing that happiness. Right? Through jobs, um, values, socialization, and all these things. I, I just feel like if the system, I don't want to say system, but because it's made up of people, but it's like if it's like half of the apple is rotten, it's like how the heck do we even like create a social, like, like how do we tip the scale between the toxicity of of these legacies and these biases that exist in our minds that express themselves systemically that define and design those government structures um but i think everything you said today neil has been quite exquisite and spot on i like seriously i appreciate your perspective as a, as a fellow caribbean i feel like yeah, it's just, this is powerful. I think change is possible. I, I think yeah. I mean, I'm an optimist. Don't get me wrong. I am, <laughs> I am an optimist. And I think I, I believe in the better part of ourselves as, as, as human beings. And um, with all of our flaws, I think our commonalities are much greater than our differences. Mm. I think our differences have been weaponized mm. um, by, by entities, people, countries, organizations. Wow, our differences so, have been weaponized. That is powerful. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and fear of the order, fear, has has been that weapon, you know, that 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 mode of division. And people are benefiting from this. Yeah, because it's like some <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then if we can if we can just sit back and reimagine as as having more in common than differences. I think we could change. We could change. And that's a social thing. I mean, you put kids, babies together from all different parts of the world and they communicate, they grow up together. They have no issues. Yeah. You put adults together from all different parts of the world and heralize the problem. 
<laughs> so you can see it's not within our DNA. The problem is not a genetic problem. It's a social problem. It's a mm -hmm. caste. It's a caste. Mm -hmm. It's a constructed problem. Mm -hmm. And um, and and I mean, living and living with people, you understand that. Living with people in different places, sharing ideas with people, you understand that. That the differences is microscopic compared to to our commonalities. I mean, but that that. When, when it's weaponized, it's, it's powerful and detrimental. Yeah. What, what are we supposed to talk about? <laughs> I think we're, we're spot on. I think everything you're saying is spot on. Because it's like, we need to do these things in order to address climate change. I think you're <laughs> absolutely right. I think everything you're describing is like colonization. I don't want to bring it back to colonization, but it's like, this is what people, a colonized group did or the colonizer went into a community they created these divisions and it's like you see this is a this is an interesting quote that i read and it was like it was quite powerful um i think it was around it was by wab du bois and he says we have no right to sit silently while the inevitable seeds are sown for a harvest of disaster to our child, black and white. Mm. Yeah, so he's essentially saying we should stop the differences. It's, it's going to create chaos. I, at least stop weaponizing our differences. Stop weaponizing our differences. I, yeah. think, I think I think that would be. I think we can yeah. we can dance through our differences, not where yeah. them as like exactly. sharp. Exactly. Weapons. And and if we're serious about diversity of force and diversity of action, differences inherently is that diversity. Mm -hmm. Weaponizing it is the problem. I think, That's yeah, I think it's, it's spot on. I think it's our good. differences, yeah. I think we solved it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. How do we de-weaponize it though? Mm. How do we denuclearize it? How how can how do we create a change without that change being bounded by like this original like yeah. because it's still gonna be it's like the change is gonna be defined by it not being a weapon. And yeah, I, yeah, yeah. In, in that inherent, it's like we're bounded into this vicious cycle in a meaning sense. So it's yeah, like, yeah. how do we even step outside of that? It's like they always talk about how black liberation is is tied to white oppression. It's like, yeah, how yeah. do we create a level of black liberation that is not tied to the narrative of white oppression? Something yeah. that and allows us to free ourselves from this sort of caste. Um, because generations beyond, if we de-weaponize it, might inscript in these same caste processes. It might be flipped. In a different way, yeah. In, in a different way. way. Might, no. Yeah. I'm just adding and, a bit more complex, the nuance to it. Yeah, and how do we accept ourselves as 
an ally to a more vulnerable, mm. right? And I'm talking about in general. Yeah. Be it um, a Caucasian male as an ally to a Caucasian female, right? Mm-hmm. Um, be it a Caucasian male as an ally to a brown person. Uh, a brown person being an ally to a brown female or or because there are different strengths and level of you having that power and you being vulnerable depending on where you are or depending on what stage you are performing right Mm -hmm. and how do you recognize that i mean it's not an easy thing to jump from from that space that stage to the next because in, in, in one point I am in a classroom with or in a meeting with let's say let's say mostly white people I'm a minority wow I'm in a, the following day I'm in a classroom with a lot of white people but I'm a professor mm. I will more power in that stage, right? To, to, to a large extent, because these are my students. Mm. I have the power of, of the grade, right? I can, so a lot of different responsibility. So how do you recognize that every time you jump from one stage to the next? This is going to be you next semester. We you said you're going <laughs> to teach at Harvard. <laughs> this might be you. This is going to be me tomorrow when I'm teaching. <laughs> but, but I think constantly thinking about it, I mean, and, and understanding it, I mean, I don't have the answers. But it's something I think. No, I think you're right. There. We need to, it's, it's that agency and power that you mentioned, right? Recognizing these different stages, because we do have multiple hats and we do perform multiple ways. How do you recognize that maybe in your family, you are not the oldest, but the more educated person? And how do you even talk about it, navigate that space. I totally totally hear it. There's sort of a, there's a, a, there's a society inside of you that exists and there's a society that exists inside of other people all around you. And you all sort of have to have the self-awareness to recognize the different parts of yourselves as they show up in different spaces, as they show up with different people with different identity. And as they are intertwined with power structures, history, and emotions and traumas, and, and how are we present amongst all these complexities, so we don't become part of the, I guess, the problem. It's like how do how are we humble with ourselves as well? How do we yeah, give ourselves yeah. the space to make mistakes, but also be be open to understanding other people in a way. And I think it takes a lot of emotional intelligence and it takes a lot of, a lot of self-awareness that it, in that sort of organic form of power and creativity is like that, that is, yeah, that is not something that's built 
spontaneously it's definitely something that you have to continually work on yourself and it's exactly. like it's crazy i know <laughs> it's crazy neil oh, we ser- talk so much <laughs> this is <laughs> i think this is my longest uh podcast interview and i loved every second of it man this is seriously it's been a pleasure having you here like very much to hear your perspective hear your wisdom um if if the viewers want li- to want to connect with you where could they find you like where where are you on social media um i'm on facebook that's that's pretty much the only social media i am on to be honest okay um i think i'm on twitter i follow a few climate scientists and that's and i am i think my wife had a instagram thingy for me but i don't like my Okay. email all right all right well if yeah people want to reach out they definitely can connect you know, uh, i was going to say right write me a, a a letter and put it in the mail but <laughs> i'll do that traditional email is probably the easiest way or oh, i seriously i appreciate you coming and this has been really amazing for tuning in to the Fabrice Garrier show. If you really like what you heard, please share it with friends, colleagues and family. And also don't forget to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and support me on Patreon. Again, we have really unique guests and for upcoming episodes, so stay tuned and thank you.